Hello, and welcome to the Professional Insight Podcast, uh, Season 4. Um, thank you very much to all our listeners. Uh, my name is Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. I'm Josh Bond. And I'm Trevor Lindy. Uh, we appreciate you guys all uh, tuning in. Please share and care uh, our uh, podcast. We're about to hit Season 5 in April. Um, and also to, uh, our, to our sponsors, Brand Boulevard, uh, for um, giving our, uh, <laughs> our future guest a nice little uh, branded piece of paraphernalia. Uh, the president of Treb, Mr. Krigger, how are you, sir? Doing well. Thank you very Thank much you again for the invitation. So much. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We, we realize you're extremely busy. Um, I actually, uh, you've been on, you've been on News Talk 1010's, um, Ask the Expert. You've been on a couple of times, right? Um, the most oh. recent was a couple weekends ago where I was listening to News Talk 1010. You were on the Saturday, then I heard you again on the Sunday. So I heard the same, uh, the, the, the same repeat. And, uh, obviously we've, we were connected on LinkedIn and I loved your content, uh, we all loved your content, so I really wanted to pick your brain because you, you hit on some really key issues about the cost of real estate, especially coming out of a federal election, going into a provincial election. There's a lot of rhetoric happening right now. Um, so first and foremost, a little bit about yourself, Treb, all that kind of stuff, if you can go ahead. Definitely. My name is Kevin Krieger. I'm president of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board, and I am a real estate broker in Toronto with Johnson & Daniel. And how long have you been uh, a real estate broker for? I've been licensed since January 7th, 2011. Okay, excellent. And when did you become president of TREB? In uh, July of last year. It's a one-year term through to June of this year. Congratulations on, on being elected. That's, uh, that's great because TREB is a huge um, advocacy body uh, out of Toronto. So we really appreciate that. Um, now, in the interview... You touched on a couple of key pieces that really struck home for me. And I, and I loved your rebuttal and I loved how you handled the objections of real estate and it being really a realtor's fault, essentially. And not that they were trying to do that, but it was just like we've I've always said and everyone on this podcast has said we do not have a demand problem. We have a supply problem. And it's not an interest rate problem. It's not a regulatory problem. As a matter of fact, putting more in place just actually pushes more people out of the market, um, people who need housing. You touched on affordable housing, which is a big piece to me, um, which I believe Treb has been advocating for since the early 2000s. And you did a warning letter. Do, if you want to touch on that, that'd be great. Most definitely. So for at least the last decade, TREB has really been trying to focus government on the supply issues that exist, not only in Toronto, but in the greater Toronto area, and, and to be frank, in many areas across the province. We, Toronto specifically, has been a net importer of residents for many, many, many years. And the reality is, even with prior pace of growth, we've never brought enough housing to market to match the new residents coming into the market on an annual basis. And there are a whole host of reasons for that. But now as we're seeing really the largest path of immigration we've seen in some time, that problem is gonna get worse 
and worse and worse unless there's substantial action on the part of largely local government, certainly in consultation with provincial government. And thankfully, based on the last federal election, there's clearly interest on the federal side to boost supply. So from a, a government perspective, we're certainly in a period and the, the federal election clearly highlighted. Housing is the number one consideration for Canadians and housing affordability. There at least now from the federal level right through the other levels of government is a consensus finally that we do have a massive supply problem. And if we're ever hoping to look at any semblance of bringing affordability to the market, the only way to bolster affordability is to bring additional supply to market. All of the policies that have been brought forward, you know, looking at the wind fair housing plan, everything is focused to artificially suppressing demand, which any economist of which I'm not will clearly tell you, you can't arbitrarily suppress one side of the supply and demand equation and expect a long-term result. You know, looking at the fair housing plan, the biggest policy piece there was effectively the foreign buyer tax. And TREB's data, which we have shared with all levels of government and many organizations for years, has been that foreign participation in our market is actually a very small percentage. And we had estimated less than 5%. No one really wanted to hear that. They wanted to sort of focus public concern to one group. So the foreign buyer tax was gonna be the be all end all solution to bring affordability back to our market. Now looking from 2018 to 2022, we're now talking about a housing crisis. So clearly the objectives of the foreign buyer tax were not met and it highlights very clearly that our data was accurate. And in fact, the taxes had net net zero implications on bringing affordability to market or opening up supply. So, you know, now we're looking at municipal governments talking about the province bringing in a speculation tax. And I think it's again, a, a similar scenario where there's an arbitrary focus on demand, which you know, through government intervention, they can certainly have some effect on for a very short period of time. Whereas the supply piece of the equation requires sort of introspective look at how government operates and really requires substantial heavy lifting on the part of government to cut red tape and bring development to market. So it'll be interesting to see with the provincial election coming up and also the municipal election, if someone eventually moves to the side of the equation where they can actually bring leadership and affect change, which is in bolstering supply. You know, and, and that, it, it, yeah, like I, I do, I, this just brings me back to sitting in the car, listening to you and just going, oh man, you're hitting on so many key pieces. Uh, economics is my thing. I'm, you know, certified financial planner and it's something that I, I, I love and you, you, you're hundred percent correct. I mean, what they're trying to do with the fair housing act, was implement a what's what's called a Pravuvian tax, which essentially you tax something in order to change behavior, but at the end of the day, you still have demand for housing. So it does actually doesn't it doesn't fix the problem. It just temporarily band-aids the problem, and then sooner or later, as we saw out in Vancouver, um, a year later, it just skyrockets because you have this pent up demand, and people are like they figure out a way around it. Um, you touched on in that same interview. 
just before we just before we get on from that um in the i don't know what the current status of of it is but i remember from my practice in the earlier 2000s the social services board had certain programs in place to to spark that this exact type of development are those completely off the table are they just so red taped right now that it's uh, impossible to get them to to shovel in in which regard which programs just i remember like uh, i'm from northern ontario so the the, the cochran uh, social services board used to have programs where they integrated uh, builders for for condominium developments and things and and it was it was it was subsidized government subsidies that were were integrated into these programs and then they were tied into you know mandating a, a 15 or a 20 year um sustainable uh, rental level um so there there certainly are still programs in these sort of public private partnerships that have existed yeah um they're they're pretty few and far between in the the toronto sector um and again, a, a lot of these programs, when you start delving into them, from a policy objective, make a lot of sense. But from yeah. a practical application, there are a number of sort of limiting caveats to the agreement and the process is so long. Yeah. But even a, a number of people I've spoken to who had interest in looking at building sort of affordable housing, ultimately had to go to market geared housing once they sort of went through all of the associated costs and the length of time the program would sort of require. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the, the government's got to get their shit together, right? In terms of let, let's move on this now. Uh, well, see, I, I've got an interesting intake on this because uh, Kevin, I'm a builder as well as a realtor in Niagara. Been a, been yeah. a realtor for 18 years in Niagara region. I've been a builder for five years. And for me, like, for example, I've got 15 houses ready to build right now that I've been waiting 10 months to get to the point where I could put shovel in ground. I've got the land in place. I've got everything. So I'm not looking at it as the fact I can't build it. I can't. The problem here, I think, is it, there's a lack of trades right now, which is a big thing. Uh-huh. But besides the trades, and I'm not talking electricians and plumbers and masons and stuff like that, which is a big shortage, framers as well. The architects. The architects are just so few and far between. They're so overrun right now. I've been working on um, 13 townhouses for a plan. I'm not going to name who I'm working with or anything like that, but we're going on 10, 11 months to get plans done that used to take me two months. So if you, if you repeal that back and I get it done in say four months, there's 13 new properties on the market, which, you know, being, being uh, the president there that you have 13 brand new units in there. You have 13 new buyers that are selling their previous houses, which could be a chain reaction of them selling their other houses too. But the, the problem that's that's here is that four years ago, they had all these systems in place and all that, but the market's gone through the roof in the last four years, at least in Niagara. And usually what happens in Toronto comes down to Niagara as well. Uh-huh. But, but now we're having a problem because just from December of 2021, the market's up 10, 15% in Niagara. So as a builder myself, and I know a lot of builders out here too, we've got current projects in 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 the, the realm of starting and the materials have gone through the roof. So we don't want to pre-sell anything because we could actually lose quite a bit of profit on, on the way. And I know a lot of builders like this too. 
So I have about a, a list of 50 people who want to buy these townhouses and we're not releasing them because we have no idea what our profit margin is. And on top of that, the market's going up so much. So last year in 2020, 2020, we sold eight detached bungalows and bungalows are the key item because there's a lot of empty nesters from Toronto come down to Niagara. So uh -huh. they're, they're targeting down here. They look for no stairs. They look for stuff like that. Now we sold this and, and it, it should probably blow your mind. We had 1,300, 1,400 square foot brand new bungalows and they were selling for about 650 down here, brand new, you know, and they're nine foot ceilings, appliances included, quartz countertops, great stuff. And the people from the Treb would come down to, I can't believe we get this for it. We'll sell up here. We'll buy down there. We'll pocket some money. We'll invest with a guy like Brandon, whatever you want to do. You know, it's, it's a great windfall for them. But then we started to build these houses to their spec and it took eight to 10 months to, to finish it after it's designed after a delay with, with, with all the red tape and the architecture and the design stage, by the time we gave them the key, their, their houses were worth $900,000. So we sold at $650,000. They got the value at $900,000. Effectively, they pocketed about $200,000, $250,000. And our profit margin, where we were at $650,000, has now eroded down by, by 25% because the material shot up in COVID. But, so right now, now, there's a shortage, I believe, because there's so many builders out there holding on to projects and all that because... They, they can't have cost certainty anymore. And the market's just going through the roof partially because of that, but because of all the delays in construction. And now, for example, there's another bungalow in Port Colborne recently that, that listed about three weeks ago. It listed up 550. And uh, it's a double car garage, 1980s kind of decor on it. 26 offers, which is probably more common in Treb, but down here, we don't see that much for it. Listed up 550, sold for 926. So this blew a lot of the realtors' mind down here. And we talked all about it and all that. And, you know, there's a consensus of, you know, lack of, of, of supply, um, but also slightly underlisting a price to kind of eliminate conditions on it and, and to shoot the moon and see how many conditions you can get. But the price effectively took bungalows in the same shape. And we thought they were around 700 for something like that. And now it's pushed it up to 900, 925. Yeah. And also so now everybody else wants to do it. It's crazy what happens. It's just the chain reaction of stuff. So but Kevin, well, looking, yeah, what your, what's your opinion on that? Well, I think if you look at your experience in the Niagara region in terms of, you know, potential exposure, not only to profit margin erosion, but potential exposure to sort of uncontrollable costs. And you look at the development process in Toronto, mm -hmm. you know, to, to sell a, a high rise, for example, you have to have pre-sales. It's yeah. not an option yeah. not to. So one of the challenges here, you know, 10 to 11 months would be music to many developers' ears in Toronto in terms of timeline to, you know, get a project from infancy to the reality where, where a shovel could go in the ground. And you look at all of the potential changes in market. You know, no one obviously saw COVID coming and certainly no one has seen the supply chain issues that have come to light obviously the mass shortage of trades in the marketplace. And if you look at that example with 13 townhomes and you now stretch that out to a multi-tower development with a thousand suites, yeah. the risk reward scenario is vastly changed. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the, the potential for risk in that scale of development is huge. So I think one of the, the biggest challenges is time. You know, when we talk to clients about buying and selling, the recommendation always is, you know, buy and sell in the same market because relative values are the same. 
you know, if you're buying in an upwardly moving market and you're selling in an upwardly moving market, you're at least in the same ecosystem. The challenge for a lot of development is if you're pre-selling in the sort of initial period of an upwardly moving market, and then you're actually going to tender a year or more later and costs have substantially increased, you know, there's, there's not a, a great deal of flexibility because you're locked into your agreements, which is why we see, you know, awful things like project cancellations yeah. where, you know, people have purchased with the intent of moving in, they've sort of planned their life around this development. And, you know, there's certainly examples where the developer has not operated um, in a positive or ethical way, mm-hmm. but there are certainly instances where just based on the amount of time it's taken to get to the construction phase, developers have been priced out of the market. They sort of sold in a, a much lower market and they're now developing in a market where costs are so much more substantial that not only is there no profit margin, there's a risk of a loss. Oh yeah. So, you know, th- these are all the realities where in, in certain markets, when you look at sort of smaller scale development, there's always risk to development. And it's one of the things that I don't think is fully understood. Yes, there's a a high potential for profitability, um, largely based on the increased value in land over time. So the longer a developer holds a site, you know, a lot of their profit is built in at the time they buy. Mm -hmm. Where when you get into larger scale development here, and just based on the financing required, you know, MES financing is not inexpensive, even in this rate environment, you know, all of those things can vastly change the performance of the development to make it an impossibility. And this is why on the supply side, one of the things we've been advocating for is instead of, you know, focusing to large scale towers as the only new possibility for inventory, looking at opportunities for conversions, So for example, I bought a a single family home in a central Toronto neighborhood that has a lot of original duplex and triplex properties. And the property was in condition that it needed substantial work. (laughs) And and the plan basically was to do a substantial renovation, build it out as a long-term income property, and essentially take it from one unit to three units completely renovate the interior and rent out each of the suites. It took over a year from initial architectural submission through to actual final approval. And instead of a triplex, we had to make it a duplex because switching it to a triplex, adding in a basement apartment would have added substantial development charges that would have taken probably three years of the total rent to pay off. To me, that's ridiculous. You know, there's no additional space being added. The building footprint was remaining identical to what it was. Cash grab. Most definitely. And and this is the challenge. You know, the the three suites that would have been created were in a very transit accessible location, would have been much more modest rents compared to a full home, and even compared to new condo product in the same neighborhood. So, you know, while I wouldn't, represented as sort of affordable housing, it would have been much more affordable than other market alternatives. And 
the reality is it's very difficult to bring those mark those products to market. Whereas if we had as of right zoning that allowed for conversion, you know, that's something that a singular homeowner who, let's say, for example, the person that I purchased from, it was a, an older individual who'd raised their family there. They're now single um, and in the home by themselves. They potentially could have looked at opportunity for conversion, kept a unit for themselves and had supplemental rental income um, in their retirement, plus two additional housing units would have been brought to market. So I think this is where government needs to get more to a grassroots level of development and look at opportunities for gentle infill intensification that can be done quickly. Um, and that homeowners who are not experienced builders can ultimately navigate that process. And I think that could bring us a substantial number of suites all across the city in varying neighborhoods, and it won't change the nature, fabric, or makeup of the neighborhood itself. Yeah, so I agree. As long as they can quickly get it through, because time's money in all this game, right? And they just don't understand that. They drag it out, drag it out, drag it out. Like so the inspectors, they're, they're hard enough to get That's quintessential government, though, right? That's quintessential government. It's, uh, it's based so, on the concept of justification for your salary, though, right? It's... Well, I think a lot of it also is, you know, cities as they've grown in population become sort of unwieldy in terms of the number of people, the diversity of housing, the unique nature of individual neighborhoods. Like there, there's a lot there. I think there's certainly a great deal of efficiency that could be had in government. And if they operated in the same way a for-profit corporation did, for example, I think there would be greater efficiency. There are a lot of layers and challenges, you know, certainly in terms of HR related issues, you know, structure that may be um, obsolete or, or not um, reflective of current requirements. But I think this is where small steps on the part of government, because, you know, really bringing substantial change in the efficiency of planning departments across the province and all of those things certainly will take time. <laughs> but looking at focused policy objectives and looking at policies that ultimately are easy to implement, for example, in Toronto, uh, laneway housing, you know, what a great win for the city and, you know, what incredible foresight on the part of city council to bring that initiative to reality. It's certainly not going to bring thousands of units to market. Explain, though, what laneway lane housing means to our listeners, because yes, they might please. not understand what that means. So basically, for there's two types. So there's laneway housing, and they've just also introduced the concept of garden suites. So basically, if you have a home that's serviced by a public laneway um, at the rear, so that's usually where your parking is, mm -hmm. you have the opportunity to build an additional dwelling there, an additional structure. And there's sort of very or fairly clear um, requirements, something certainly that you would need to engage an architect in the process to determine setbacks and maximum size. But there is the potential effectively to build an entirely separate secondary building on the property. Now for properties that are not serviced by a laneway, the city has just launched their pilot program for garden suites, which essentially means that you can build a secondary structure in your rear yard um, that could act as 
you know, a rental unit, a secondary housing unit for a family member, um, and ultimately gives, again, a great deal of flexibility. We're seeing certainly more multi-generational sort of co-living scenarios where children are living with older parents, and in some cases, siblings are living together. So I think, again, it's a, it's a unique and different way to add additional housing units to market, give flexibility to existing homeowners. So for someone who's lived in you know, the larger primary home on the property for X number of years, has raised their family there, this gives an opportunity potentially for them to rent out the larger property and move into a smaller secondary dwelling on their existing land. Because one of the issues also in Toronto, unlike every other municipality in Ontario, is we have two land transfer taxes. We have the provincial land transfer tax, and then we have the municipal land transfer tax. That is a massive barrier for someone making a move in the market, especially someone you know, downsizing or right-sizing within the market. And a lot of clients we meet with who typically would go from a larger two-story family home, for example, that want to transition to a bungalow or sort of a smaller property in the same neighborhood before eventually moving to a condo sort of later life. Our recommendation when we sort of have done the math for them is stay in your two-story home as long as possible, skip that middle transition to a bungalow or a smaller home within the neighborhood and you know, wait out to make that move finally to a condo because the amount of equity you're losing in the transaction really is not getting you anywhere. Um, so the unfortunate part is a lot of people stay much longer in their home and you're sort of arbitrarily affecting the natural course of movement within the market yep. because people don't want to sort of pay the transactional costs, for example, of land transfer tax, which they get zero value for um, solely as part of a downside. So you're seeing less transactions in the market and delayed transactions in the market, which also affects affordability because you have limited supply coming. Yeah, that's so interesting. You, I never even you, thought of it that way. So you, you touched on, if you can explain to our listeners, as I brought up at the beginning, you, you, you touched on, um, I understand the concept, which is if you have more developers, you increase supply. If you decrease the barriers to entry, you increase supply. I mean, it's just economics 101, really. Um, so you mentioned that the costs, specifically for TREB in, 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 in Toronto, GTA, the cost to do a 10-unit, I guess, apartment complex, condominium complex, doesn't matter, is, is, is fairly similar to a 100-unit. And so, so if you could explain on that. Yeah, so, so not the cost, um, but the timeline. So the, the challenge is, and this is where I'm not an advocate for developers. Um, no. I've, I've certainly been accused of that. But <laughs> in, in terms of what I'm advocating for is development of some degree. So I think right now our market is focused exclusively to large-scale developers. If you look at where housing supply is coming from, the vast majority almost exclusively is coming from larger towers. And that's certainly an important part of intensification in any growing city. What we've advocated for is the ability of smaller scale, 
you know, mom and pop developers, individual homeowners to have the ability to add additional housing units in communities. So through Plex housing, you know, looking at townhouse development, you know, we have a number of clients in my own business who certainly have experience in low rise development, certainly would be interested in doing townhome development. And we've looked at a number of sites where the metrics of the actual land cost versus the end selling price makes sense. The biggest concern is the amount of time planning will require and the amount of time city approvals will require. And in almost all cases, what started as a potential townhome development ultimately became a mid-rise condo development because it didn't make sense if it was gonna take X amount of time to approve you know, a much smaller density, it didn't make sense. So it was better to go for a maximum density and essentially amortize all of the associated costs of holding the land, land use planning, architecturals, site preparation, all of those things, and amortizing them over a larger square footage. So the unfortunate part there is you end up with development that takes much longer to bring to market, development that ultimately takes longer to build as well, development that in some cases changes the makeup or effect of community, um, generally development that also brings on the ire of the community. And you know, not that sort of nimbyism is, uh, is a good thing, but I think that there's lots of instances where development that was much more in keeping with the fabric of the community could have been brought to market, but for a lot of the red tape associated that ultimately led to larger scale development the community was not supportive of. That, you, you know, you, you articulate it so bloody well. Like, I, I, it, it, no, it's great the way that you, you know, like, and we always, we're here at Professional Insight. We're all about taking what we do as experts in, in our fields and, you know, like layman, like, you know, using layman's terms and really just trying to explain it to people how it really impacts. Because, you know, most people will be just like, yeah, so timeline, I don't, how does that affect me? Well, you've just explained how it affects you because, and on top of that, the only people that are going to take that timeline and take that risk are the big developers because they have the deep pockets to sustain <laughs> that longevity and those delays with the architects, with the city and all that kind of stuff. Whereas a small developer just might not have that ability. Well, and the big developers have the tradespeople and the architects in their pockets, so they'll make them a, a priority, right? Where if you're a smaller developer like myself, and I'm competing with a big developer for an architect or, or you know, even a spot with the city, boom, priority goes to them for basically everything. And then I'm put at the back of the line and I have to wait out where my costs are going up. And I usually have higher interest rates than the bigger developers too, right? So it's it's tough. The big ones are, it's almost like a corporation, right? Where the Walmarts and Costco are taking out the little little businesses where the big developers are taking out the little, the little developers or little builders out there who are trying to compete with them, right? And as soon as they find out there's a, there's a 30 lot subdivision over there, boom, they'll, they'll jump and take it out of the little guy's hands right away. It's tough, you know, but so it's. Yeah. I, I think also though, looking at, you know, different scales of development companies, the financial resources certainly are, are part of the equation because they're obviously substantial financial barriers to entry getting into larger scale development. But if you really look at where the opportunity exists for smaller developers in the marketplace, you know, 
a master-planned, multi-phased condominium development certainly requires a great deal more in the way of planning consultation. There's certainly an argument that it could be much faster than it is currently. But if you look at the opportunities for smaller scale developers, of which there are many, many more in the market than there are big condo players, if the city would take away some of the risk in conversion opportunities, if there was a clear discussion around, you know, as of right opportunities for development, because, you know, most of the land in the city is residential single family. If there were changes made that as of right allowed for plexed housing, allowed for slightly more dense development, that would take a lot of the risk away for a smaller scale developer. <clears throat> and if you were coming to market with something that you had, you know, as of right zoning to build, that also cuts your timeline substantially and opens up more opportunity for smaller scale developers or individual homeowners to bring housing supply to market. So instead of relying on, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 corporations that have the ability and track record for large scale development, and instead you had 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 individuals or smaller scale investors that could bring housing units to market across the city, I think then you would have a much more balanced opportunity from the supply perspective. So I want to bring in uh, Trevor on this one, and then maybe Josh can chirp in on this because of you know um, what what Kevin's talking about is the the, the extension of the, of of delays and and what have you. When you you know, I guess Trevor, if you want to maybe chime in on the impact that that has on a mortgage approval, the then on top of that. Um, now I see it even with just doing minor work in my backyard or, or, you know, any minors, you know, quote already has price increases embedded. Hey, we have the right to increase this by 3%, 5% because of costs going through the roof. Um, Trev, how do you, how do you navigate that? Um, but that shouldn't be a new thing. Ask Jeff about his contracts. The escalation clause. There's an escalation clause built into his contract, right? Because no, no, you never know what's going to No, happen. I understand that. I'm talking about how does one who's approved for 400 today mm. because of the delay. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. How do they, so Trevor, you if you want to comment, like, how do you, how do you make that switch? Because Trevor does all the back work, all the mm -hmm. like, right? Trevor? Yeah. yeah. That, that's one of those things that there, you know, we, we have files where somebody can be approved today to buy but if it's a long drawn out close, they may no longer be qualified, right? What's their income done? Have they changed their liabilities? And the big thing too is, so if there's an escalation clause in there, the value can go up. And then what about uh, even, um, so not just, uh, not just the escalation clause, but the fact, um, sorry, losing the train of thought there on that one. Um, Delayed closing the qualifying maybe? rate. Sorry, the qualifying rate, right? Yeah. Like the stress test right now is five and a quarter. But if the uh, if the government decides that we need to change that qualifying rate, that could put somebody completely out of the market where now they're they're approved, they're ready to go, and 
we may find out down the road that they're they're no longer available. That's why so many times builders and developers will require a client to deal directly with a bank and not with a broker because typically banks, the credit unions as well, have longer rate hold periods than what we have access to as brokers. Uh, we have some lenders that, are, that do allow us a little bit of latitude on that. Uh, but, you know, like I'll, I can think of a, a former colleague at Scotiabank that very much uh, does new construction condos in Toronto that are taking two and a half to four years to complete. So here she is, she gets the original approval. The original approval is good for 120, excuse me, good for one year because of it being a new construction. Uh, she'll have that in place, but then two and a half years later, once it's finally closing, um, Scotiabank from a reputational risk perspective will still move forward if there's the ability to do so. Uh, and what I mean by if there's the ability to do so is if there's 20% or more down, they have more room to play. As when it's less than 20% down, unfortunately, we just don't have have that as an option and, and people may have to walk away. And that's why we do see, you know, a growing number of assignments happening on new construction properties. But to be so, honest, from a builder standpoint, someone locks in a purchase at 650 and say it takes a year to go up and the, and the cost goes up another 50 grand to that buyer with an escalation clause. And then that buyer can't afford to get it. More than likely, the builder's going to say, no problem. Here's your deposit. Take your money back. Because in today's market, that house that they purchased a year and a half ago is probably up 150 to 200 grand. So the builder will probably say, no problem, no, no harm, no foul. Here's your deposit back. Have a great day. And then they'll pocket the extra profit, right? That's 100%. kind of how it's been going the right last two years. I have one but, right now that's happening at that exact way, Jeff, right? As the builder, you can't afford No problem. Here you go. Here's your release. Yeah. Have your money. Yeah. Have a good one. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the issue. So, you know, this is where in talking to our clients about different opportunities for housing in the market, you know, looking at buying a new build with a long time horizon, especially when things like escalation clauses are embedded in the agreement, you know, it's certainly important. And that's where also the real estate lawyer during the 10 day cooling off period plays a really important role. Because if someone's on the margins of affordability and they're buying a property with a long time horizon and the potential certainly for increase in value, but if there's also an increase in cost, this is where the buyer really needs to understand what it is they're purchasing. Mm -hmm. And you know, we've had clients who have come to us initially looking at pre-construction opportunities, really like the opportunity to sort of pay a deposit over a period of time, um, like a lot of the flexibility sort of to plan towards a future date, but, you know, there's risk in any transaction. And ultimately, while, you know, the liability is limited, because yes, I would agree in most cases, the builder will take it back because it's increased in value. Right now. The reality is that person still needs a home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if that person bought a year or two years ago and ultimately exit the, exits the transaction one or two years later, their buying power in the market is so much lower. So, you know, it, it may mean that they're out of the market for many, many years or out of the market altogether. So that's where it's really important also that buyers consult with a professional realtor and look at the various options that exist for them to ensure that, you know, the, the opportunity is clearly highlighted and, you know, they understand items like escalation clauses that can substantially change their affordability. 
And I'd say make sure you work with a realtor who's experienced in new builds because escalation escalation clauses are sometimes hidden in there and they shouldn't be. You know, they should be very upfront about it. Most definitely. Well, you know, and, and, and so I'm sure you've lost out, Kevin, on, on, on your, your clients have lost out in these types of situations. Um, now, I, uh, let's just piggyback. We all joke uh, on here. Um, how are we for your time? I'm more cognizant of your time. Good still. Uh, pre- we really appreciate it because there's a lot to dig in here because of the, the area of expertise that you bring. Um, you, you mentioned... Um, we, we want to talk about, and we joke about, uh, oh, Toronto finally has discovered Niagara. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it took a pandemic uh, <laughs> to actually realize that. Um, so uh, can you, maybe you, yeah, you're over 10 years in the industry now, president of TREB. Um, when did you, A, have, have you seen that with your clientele moving, moving down this way? Uh, and then two, what, what was the shift for you when you thought I'm going to sell in Toronto and I'm going to go move down to Niagara, when did you start to hear that either in your role as a realtor and broker or as the president Trevor, both more so? I think speaking more to my business, um, I have a very sort of diverse clientele and sort of a diverse background um, as well. So I grew up in the West end of the city, went to school in central Toronto um, have a number of friends in sort of York region and a number of my clients have largely owned secondary properties in the Niagara region um, initially. So a lot of people had sort of cottage property. Um, yes. A number had sort of properties in Niagara on the Lake. I have a number of clients in Port Colburn and have transacted there myself. Um, so I think, you know, Toronto has always had, um, connection to various areas in and around. So, you know, the Niagara region being one, looking up to sort of Collingwood Thornbury as a secondary location, looking at the Muskokas and the sort of Perry Sound area as well, as well as Peterborough, the Kawarthas, you know, we're, we're sort of tied to um, many additional locations. I think as my clients have aged, some have looked at the Niagara region specifically as a great retirement opportunity. Um, so some have bought their principal residence there. They still are in close proximity to Toronto. Um, and it really is an area that's well-serviced um, in terms of amenities. I would say during the pandemic, we certainly saw people spending more time outside of the city, people upsizing secondary properties outside of the city as well. So people upgrading cottages and second homes. And certainly we have had a number of clients who already had the ability to work from home, didn't utilize it to its full potential, still liked the idea of going into the office because they didn't think they'd have the same um, efficiency working at home. With COVID have realized that they've sort of gotten into a groove and um, quite like the work at home opportunity. And, just recently, I had clients, we've sold their home and they're now looking um, outside of the city, largely for more space and potentially a closer connection in their specific case to nature. So certainly, I think the pandemic opened up people's eyes to cottaging, opened up people's eyes to opportunities outside of Toronto. 
Um, but I would say, at least in my personal experience, most of my clients who have made the move were sort of closer to retirement age or had long-term opportunity for a work at home um, plan within their business or company. Excellent. So the, um, and what do you, what are your usual steps for, because um, we'll, we'll probably try to get this episode edited out right, right away. Um, now that you got a connection here down in Niagara um, between Jeff and Josh and what have you, um, we'll, we're definitely, or anyone, any one of our listeners that are listening that want maybe to look at uh, Toronto, reach out to us, or we'll, we'll, we'll connect you with Kevin. What is your usual process? I guess when your personal business now um, with, with, you know, because you live in Toronto. So there is a, that is where your, your sweet spot is, but what do you normally do? Would you reach out to someone like a, you know, a Jeff Collins and who's also a builder, but on top of that, a, a realtor, like what is your process typically when you cross pollinate? So I think it really depends on location. Um, I certainly have a lot of experience in the sort of Muskoka Perry Sound area. Personally, I own property there um, and have access to the local board and am sort of more active in that particular region. So if I had a client who was looking in that specific space, um, I'd potentially work with a local colleague who I have a relationship <clears throat> with. Looking in other areas where I don't necessarily have the same level of experience, typically, and again, depending on the client and relationship, we would for sure engage a local professional. I think that there's lots of opportunity where that sort of collaborative approach brings you a great deal of market knowledge, um, but also a great deal of inventory opportunity. Certainly knowing what's coming to market um, in Toronto, for example, in the areas that I work um, I know of lots of properties that will be coming to market at various points in time. And I think having that understanding and ability certainly puts your client in a, a winning position um, to know about all of the opportunities or as many of the opportunities as possible within a market area. But, you know, certainly working with someone who has great familiarity with the specific area my client's looking to go to, um, based on my business being almost exclusively repeat and referral. We typically remain involved in the process. Yeah. Um, and we sort of work collaboratively with a, a realtor colleague in terms of, you know, obviously facilitating the relationship. Uh, but also in many cases, uh, I have clients who bought in South Florida. I have clients who bought in California, um, clients who bought in New York. And I'm obviously not licensed to work in any of those jurisdictions but have traveled with clients, introduced them to a local realtor colleague, um, and have sort of been there for showings, been there to tour properties with them, because I've worked with them for many years. So I know sort of what their requirements are. I know what they're looking for. I've been there to provide sort of uh, act as a sounding board in terms of, you know, what could be altered or changed and how it, it works for them as a, an overall property. So I think, you know, maintaining that relationship and bringing in additional value to clients is really our core objective. So we look for any opportunity to provide the highest level of advice and guidance to our clients and provide strong resources, a 
across the board, whether they be, you know, realtor-based, developer-based, builder-based, designer-based, um, definitely in terms of legals and always in terms of mortgage. Kevin, I got a question for you. Um, being a Niagara realtor here for a long time now, we, we see an influx of Toronto buyers coming down, GTA buyers. Now, a common question I get, being a builder, I get a lot of people call me and, and feel me out and the realtors are doing it. A common question I get from a lot of realtors is they have no clue about the city they're buying. So they're asking me questions about that particular city because they've never been there. Yet they're still representing their client and driving down here probably once, maybe twice to purchase on that. What's your opinion on a realtor who's representing their buyer in an area two or three hours away from where they're current market knowledge is. Do you think that should be done or not? Or what's your opinion on that? So I guess my answer will be multi-part. So we as realtors are licensed to trade within the province of Ontario. Nope. I personally have experienced this where, you know, a, a local realtor in a specific location sort of said, you know, you have no market knowledge or what have you. Meanwhile, I, I am actually a member of the local board. Um, I have actually transacted a number of times in that particular location, and I track their market data on sort of a, a daily basis. I have alerts set up through their system, which is obviously separate from TREPS, um, and I'm actually a dual member. So I'm a member mm -hmm. of two different boards. So I think based on them being a TREB realtor doesn't necessarily mean that their market exp expertise is exclusively to Toronto. If you look at the sort of um, TREB marketplace, and you look at TREB.ca and look at where our listings are, we have listings across the province. We have realtors who work in Northern Ontario who have chosen to be part of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. We certainly have members who work in the Niagara region. We have members who work in Peterborough. We have members who are all across the province. And they choose to be a part of the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board because they see the power in the collective. Mm -hmm. We have clients who certainly obviously buy in the greater Toronto area, but we also have clients who trade across the province. And many of them look to our marketplace as the sort of key information point, um, not only in terms of you know, volume of members, but also volume of transactions. and the number of transactions impacted by Toronto connected people. So I think we should always have competency and know what it is we're selling. I think it's very important that a realtor understands their strengths, but more importantly, understands their weaknesses in the service of clients. You know, selling condominiums in central Toronto is very different than selling recreational property in Perry Sound. Um, or, you know, selling properties in various areas. Yes. You know, when, when you look at, you know, sewer versus septic, you know, well versus city services, there's a lot of differences. And I think as long as the realtor has the expertise necessary to provide, you know, credible professional service to their client, I don't think the, the geographic connection is key, but certainly I would never sell in a market that I don't know or understand. So if the first question from realtors, I've never been to Welland before, I'm not sure where it is. I've never been to Niagara region. You'd recommend them not representing their, their client there probably? I, I think the, the question to any realtor in representing a client is, what are you bringing to 
the equation. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know where the location is, you don't know anything about the location, you really can't provide advice or guidance to the client, how are you really providing professional, credible, and competent service? Okay. Yeah, okay. I, think, I think the reality of it is, in, in being a lawyer, I deal with a wide variety of uh, real estate agents, right? So you've got your dime agents, and then you've got your Cadillac agents, right? And unfortunately, a lot of times you see your dime agents uh, that are kind of acting the way Jeff is, uh, you know, because they're so excited to uh, have a client that... Uh, doesn't matter where it is, right? Like they've got a, they've got a transaction. Well, and I think in, in any professional service role or in any professional service business, you know, the area of law would be the same. Um, yep. When we do a lot of pre-construction sales as well as resale. And there have been many, many instances in my career where we've sort of spoken to our client or, or spoken to the realtor representing a, a buyer in one of the developments we're representing. And the first question is, you know, do they have a lawyer that has experience in pre-construction? Oh yes, yes, you know, they're a lawyer, they're real estate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The reality is just like realtors, you know, all lawyers are not equal. And there's so many different types of property and various circumstances as well that, you know, specialization in certain fields is important and experience is very important. So in the same way that, you know, realtors should always be cautious that they know and understand the transaction that they're involved in and always look to provide value to the client. I think it's the same looking at lawyers or even looking at lenders, you know, commercial versus residential lending, very, very different equation. And you know, someone could be incredibly experienced in residential lending, but would have no experience in the commercial side. Technically, they're licensed to do both, but does that necessarily mean that they're providing the best value to the client? And that's what I think all, all of us need to really look to. The difficulty is, though, is we don't control all the other people in the process, right? So inevitably nowadays though there's always one donkey somewhere in that transaction whether it be you know one of the agents one of the lawyers one of the, the insurance people, right the client <laughs> but it's almost almost 100 percent of the transactions that there's a donkey involved though right and it's i don't know anyways i digress i think with something as personal as real estate potentially as high value as well um, you know, it's generally the largest single asset and largest single transaction an individual will do in their lifetime. So, you know, based on that and all of the various parties involved, you're going to have challenges for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think for those of us who, you know, are professionals, those of us who have substantial experience, that's where we really can step in and shine and sort of show our value in bringing that transaction forward to a positive conclusion for our client. Yeah, I usually think it's not if, it's when, and then you just got to be ready for it and, you know, solve the, solve the puzzle and move on and smile the whole time. 100%. <laughs> you got to do so business. Yeah, well, it's part of business, right? <laughs> if you don't have a headache, you're not busy. <laughs> I, 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 th 
We, Kevin, we've we've touched on a ton. Um, it's I think our this has gone almost an hour. We got one more question. One more question. Okay, one more me. question, and then if you don't mind, sorry, because I'm very conscious of your time. No, give worries. me your prediction of 2022 real estate in Toronto. I want to hear. Great question, actually. It's a great. Where's it question. going? Yeah. So I, th I think looking at the market in Toronto, the supply challenge obviously is going to remain. Um, I think we are going to see movement in interest rates, which, you know, will have some effects on the market. Generally speaking, I think we're going to see price growth in the low double digits. Um, so not the same rapid pace of growth we saw this past year, uh, but certainly still positive price growth moving into the end of 2022. We're certainly seeing, at least, you know, speaking personally, I'm seeing a, a massive supply of properties available for sale right now. We recently had two sales and we were the only property available in each neighborhood, um, which has been sort of the first time in my career I've experienced that on a fairly regular basis. Did so, you get multiple offers on both of these properties that you listed? We did. We had multiple preemptive offers on both of them. Okay. Wow. So I think it speaks to certainly the level of activity in the market. Generally, January is typically a much quieter period in the marketplace. This year, again, in, in my personal business, we were busy really through Christmas and through the entire month of January. Yeah. Um, and I think we've had the highest number of transactions in January we've had in 11 years in, in my specific business. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be a very active 2022. I think the challenge certainly will be supply and inventory. I certainly hope with, you know, two elections coming up that we start having more dialogue at the provincial and municipal level around the supply conversation. I certainly hope that, you know, some policies come to pass in the short term that sort of move the supply equation forward. And I hope that some of these long-term counselors who have been there through the exacerbation of this incredible supply issue, wake up and recognize that they have an incredible ability to be thought leaders in this space. They have an incredible ability to affect change for their constituents. And they have an incredible ability to bring supply to market in the short term if they utilize the tools available to them. Well, on that note, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, so again, uh, Kevin Krigger, right? Uh, you are a broker with, who's the broker, uh, the firm again? With Johnson & Daniel, a division of Royal Page Real Estate Services Limited. Royal Page, all right. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. And you are also the president of TREB, which is the Toronto, um, the, the Toronto Residential, no, the Toronto, Toronto, Region, Toronto Real Estate, Real Estate Board. Toronto Region Real Estate Board, T-R-R-E-B.ca. Uh, you want to move to Toronto, do any business in Toronto, please contact Kev. And I uh, definitely would love to have you on the on the podcast again because you're such a wealth of knowledge and you just well spoken. You just, you just add so much value to what we kind of bring to the table. Mm -hmm. So be on the lookout for that. I'll reach out to your assistant um, to to schedule that again. 
Uh, thank you so much again for your time. We really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Help us okay. help you stay informed. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.